It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and may I introduce to you my co-host, Executive Director of Story Collider, the one and only Liz Neely. Hello! <laughs> That's right. Liz is going to be joining me as co-host on our podcast episodes going forward, and I'm really psyched about it. because as am I. <laughs> As much as I represent the artistic side of the organization, Liz represents the scientific side, and I learned so much from her. For example... Well, one of my favorite things I always talk about is this feeling of getting sucked into the story world. I remember Aaron and I were sitting around trying to talk about evaluation, that sexy subject. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, like, how do you know something amazing is happening on stage? What happens in the room? And Aaron, you were saying like, oh, that palpable silence, like the crowd just is different um, somehow. And so I went digging and I discovered that that's actually, it's a thing. And that beautiful feeling of being sucked into a story. So like you can't hear someone calling your name if you're reading a book or like you go to the movie theater and three hours pass and you don't feel it. It's called transportation. And so narrative transportation is something now that we think about a lot because we also know it connects to how people change their minds about something. Their attitudes can shift when they're sucked into that story world. So it, it's delicious and also science. <laughs> <laughs> and I love when there's something like that as a storyteller that I sort of feel instinctively is true. And then Liz has a science reason to prove it. <laughs> it's I the al best. <laughs> I always get nervous when Erin says, my science proves anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, she, she has science behind it that yes. she can explain to me if, if that feels better. <laughs> yes, much better. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, we're really excited to share more things like this uh, with all of you as we host together. Mm. And to kick things off, we have decided in today's bonus episode to share stories that each of us have told on the Story Collider stage uh, and talk about how they've changed over the years because we have these new versions that we've told recently, mm. but we've been telling these stories since we really got started at Story Collider. Mm. So they have evolved. But first, we promise to answer your questions about Story Collider that you've been emailing in. And it seems like most of them center around how Story Collider got started and how things have changed over the past nearly 10 years yeah. that we've been doing this work. So I figured we would just share our story. Yeah. So about 10 years ago here in New York, I met this physicist named Ben Lilly 
in a storytelling class with the amazing Margot Lightman, and we hit it off. And he was actually probably the first PhD scientist that I had ever really known in my life. And he had this idea to start a science-themed storytelling show. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know. It's so specific. (laughs) Science. Does anybody really want that? Uh, But he was so fired up about it. So Margot introduced him to this other student that she had who somehow was also a physicist who did comedy. Apparently that's a thing. Uh, named Brian Wecht and they put together a show and I went to it uh, because I'm such a good friend I want to be supportive I think you could tell I'm a good friend <laughs> you're story, a great right? friend <laughs> thank you Liz uh, but I was actually kind of blown away when I went to the show by how human the stories were like how funny how moving as like wow scientists are people too <laughs> so <laughs> it turns out <laughs> yeah <laughs> So a few months later, Ben told me Brian was moving to Boston, and he asked me to take over working on the show with him here in New York, and I said yes right away. So together we started producing this podcast that you are listening to right now, and we built a nonprofit organization with a mission to find, develop, and share these amazing stories about science as a way of showing that science is a part of everyone's lives and it belongs to everyone. And somehow, over the course of these 10 years, I have really fallen in love with these stories that I've been so lucky to hear and produce and be a part of. And Who would have thought 10 years ago that science stories would become my greatest passion? (laughs) (laughs) So while stories were what brought me to science, Liz has kind of the opposite story. Oh, yeah, basically completely the opposite story. (laughs) So I was one of those little kids who I always knew I wanted to study science from the time I was like six years old. I wanted to study fish, like not (laughs) whales, not turtles, like definitely not dolphins, (laughs) (laughs) always fish. And I, I just loved when I would go to science class, I felt like it was these secret answers. Like they would give me knowledge about the universe that other people maybe sometimes didn't like I remember like I'm the oldest of five and one time when my mom and dad said we were going to have another baby I was like oh that's so exciting where do babies come from (laughs) I have some questions (laughs) I have questions and they gave me this I love you mom and dad but this beautiful story about how there were shelves in heaven and God had like a secret plan of how many babies he snuck onto your shelf and you didn't know and I thought, yeah, no, uh-uh, I don't believe this. <laughs> so, like, I marched my little 10-year-old self, you know, actually younger, but to the library and checked out every book I could find. And from then on, it was really just like, oh, when I have a question about the world, science is going to tell me the truth and the answer. And so I went straight through and really bought into a lot of ideas in that space that I didn't even know maybe, you know, weren't so great for me. Like this idea that there's logic and data and those things are good. And then there's like emotion or stories, right? And stories in particular felt like hand-waving. And so Aaron, this is what we would do. Like if your data is not strong, you could tell a compelling story. And that was not something to be, you know, proud of. So I saw the world in black and white. Stories were and not on the good side of it. Uh, But then I met this guy named Ben Lilly at science communication conferences, Mm. and he and I would complain about the state of the world and the state of science communication, and I really agreed with him and liked what he had to say, (laughs) and then he invited me to these shows, and I thought, 
oh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and so unlike Aaron, I am not, I guess, a good friend. So I didn't go. Instead, I donated money so that like on a monthly basis, <laughs> I could be like, oh, yeah, I support the project. But then I could only do that. Some would say that's also good friendship. <laughs> I mean, it's a different kind. But then after about a year of that, Story Collider came to Seattle where I was living at the time. And I went, I met Aaron. That didn't go so well. I didn't think like you liked me very much, <laughs> but the show was amazing and I was hooked. So here we are today, uh, leading Story Collider now as two people who both originally thought it was a terrible idea <laughs> and now really invest so much of our, our passion and our lives into it, which is kind of amazing. And uh, since that time, Brian has left Story Collider to pursue opportunities as a musician and internet personality with Game Grumps and Ninja Sex Party. Uh, ben left a few years ago to start a theater called Caveat here in New York, which is home to Story Collider and many shows like Story Collider. If you're in the area, you should definitely check it out, caveat.nyc. And Ben remains on our nonprofit board. And Liz and I have been uh, running the ship. <laughs> Just two cozy captains. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So today, to kick off this new evolution of the Story Collider podcast, we're going to share new versions of our own old stories. So these were on the podcast a long time ago. And so we're going to play those and then we'll talk about how they've changed over the years. Our first story today is from Liz Neely. It was recorded in March 2018 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, UK, at our show in collaboration with the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. The theme that night was regeneration. I love tests. I love them. Exams are my favorite thing, which is a good thing because as an American university student, I'm taking five or six classes per semester, and each of those has somewhere between three and five exams. So it's almost on a weekly basis that I get to sit down and engage in a fencing match with my instructors. I like to actually cover the answers to multiple choice questions so that I can read the question, I know the answer, and then I imagine how I would write this test if I was trying to manipulate my students and then uncover them. And it's this game of like, oh, come on, Dr. Infantino, this is child's play. Or like, well done, Higgins, you almost got me, but not today, not today. And the thing was, I didn't just want to have the flawless multiple choice answers. I took great pride in drawing diagrams and illustrations that were just, you know, tugged at the heartstrings. They were so beautiful and perfect. And, and this is a good thing because I would tear through these exams really rapidly and I wanted to impress my instructors, but my classmates, not so much. I didn't want them to know how much fun I was having with these exams, right? Because I saw them as my competition uh, at best. And also... <laughs> I was already not very popular, in case you can't tell, I was a peach. <laughs> but as I progressed through biology classes in undergraduate, things started to get more difficult. And instead of having my lovely little multiple choice exams, it would be something like a pile of sticks and twigs and weeds dumped in front of you, and then your job was to identify those to species. 
And the hard thing was that in real life, those leaves and weeds rarely look exactly like the diagram you have so faithfully memorized. So I sort of gritted my teeth. And as I was working in a research lab on oysters as well, the same problem was plaguing me. You know, in theory, my job was to catalog every bryozoan and polychaete worm and mussel, everything that grew on oyster reefs. In reality, what would happen is I would get these big chunks of oysters dredged off the bottom, and then I would sit for hours over a tray, over stinking, noxious mud, trying to pick apart and identify this gray dead thing from that gray dead thing. (laughs) And my desire for order and beauty and perfection was really bumping up against uh, science. But for me, with the big hurdle, when you, when you want to become a marine biologist, it's not just the stuff that's happening in the lab, the lab work and, you know, the exams that lead to the lab work. But the big test is the field work. And so as our field work came up for my classes, I was getting more and more excited. And so there was one weekend where we all piled into a van with all of our waders and our gear, and we took off across the Chesapeake Bay to the eastern shore of Maryland for a research cruise. And as we pull up in front of this old rambling two-story sort of broken down house, I'm feeling great. We unpack all of our gear and then bottles start coming out. And this is okay because I'm ready for this as well. Now, in the United States, for those of us who are rule followers, you're not allowed to drink until you're 21. But I knew that alcohol was an important part of marine biology. And so I had approached this like I approached everything else with my lab notebook. (laughs) I had meticulous tasting notes like Kahlua, yes. Tequila, no. (laughs) Like blue curacao, why blue, why? (laughs) But so I had, you know, cataloged my alcohol intake and I knew I was ready for this side of things as well. I was not ready to watch this professor who I hadn't worked with before finish off first one bottle of tequila and then the second and then start sloshing the third. And as I watched his face get redder and redder and start to turn that hideous shade of purple that you know is bad news, he's getting louder and I'm getting quieter because if I know anything, it's that drunk men like that are dangerous and I don't want to attract his attention. And so I stopped drinking and he's starting to just gesture and walk around the room and talk to people. And then his bleary gaze locks on me. And he starts telling this incoherent ghost story about this old ghost who haunts the house. And this old ghost loves curvaceous women and he really loves breasts, this old ghost. And this old ghost just happens to haunt the bedroom where I'm supposed to be staying. And don't you know, this old ghost loves brunettes. Now, I don't know for sure if he is talking about himself, but I know he's talking about me and I'm done. I just stand up and leave and think I will take the situation into my own hands. So I go grab the mattress off the bed in the room I'm supposed to be staying in drag it downstairs into the living room, sort of front and center. And I go to bed thinking, problem solved. (laughs) I'm back in control again. And so I fall asleep, feeling quite confident and looking forward to the day tomorrow. Until I'm woken up 
in the middle of the night by the sound of somebody stumbling into the doorway. And one minute, I'm just kind of squinting with one eye at this silhouette as he's jangling coins and keys. And then the next moment, I'm already starting to move because I hear his pants hit the floor. I command a roll off my mattress and I grab the girl next to me and I just say, go, 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 go. And we run out a side door, but not before we can hear the unmistakable sound of him urinating. He's peeing all over himself, the floor, our stuff, and our bed. Now, for me, I'm disgusted and also angry, but I'm trying to play it cool because these classmates who I'm in competition with, I'm also trying to impress. And I know that being a scientist means handling whatever situation might come your way. I think I would have talked myself to just going back to bed if he hadn't been snoring face down on my mattress. And so I think I'll look for the other instructor, the co-instructor is a graduate student. I'll find him and he'll help me sort of sort all of this out and figure out what we're gonna do. And I accidentally walk in on him having sex with one of the other students in my class. It's three o'clock in the morning on the Eastern shore of Maryland. I go outside. I feel so alone and angry and embarrassed and uncertain. And for lack of any better alternative, I make my way to the kitchen, I think as we all do in times of hardship. <laughs> and I'm happy to see there, there's four or five other students who were awake and sober, who had witnessed bits and pieces of this night gone so terribly wrong. And we sort of form a little band and come up with a plan, which is an excellent one because it involves pancakes. <laughs> And searching for the syrup and, you know, mixing and baking, it's a welcome distraction. And at this point, it's maybe four o'clock in the morning, so we think, oh, we'll go outside, we will take a night hike, we'll look at the stars and name the constellations, and we'll figure out what we're going to do. And what we decide is that we are indeed going to get on that boat. This is the research cruise that we've come all this way for, regardless of what our professor may or may not be able to do. So we make our way back. <clears throat> and when even a cowbell rung immediately over his head fails to rouse him at all, we roll him onto his side into the recovery position, hoping that he won't aspirate and choke and die on his own vomit. And I'm standing there looking down at him. And I'm thinking, what is this gray, stinking... <laughs> thing in front of me that I'm supposed to identify. Is, is this a scientist? Is this what this is all about? I don't know. And so while he's the one covered in vomit, I'm certainly feeling nauseated and in a nice change of situations. Getting on the boat actually helped that situation quite a lot. So we spend all day on the Chesapeake Bay. I'm looking at seagulls and seagrass. And I'm starting to realize, like, I do know these animals, these species. I know where to look for them, how to identify them, what they do, what they're like. I, I recognize them. They're like friends. There's the little Beleni. It's got this mohawk. It's always angry. It's Chasmodibox squianus. There's the middleus edulis, the muscle. 
There's the blue crab whose name, Kalanectes sapidus, means beautiful swimmer. And these species become like a litany to me. The genus and species is soothing. And at the end of the day, as we're starting to motor back, making it our way over the waves home, I'm reflecting, I'm thinking about all that's happened to me on very little sleep. And I realize biology may not be about being perfect and being really good at exams. And in any case, if this was a test, I wasn't the one who failed it. And I think maybe biology is about realizing that the way to do it is you shake off a bad night, you grab your colleagues and collaborators, and you go get on the damn boat and make sense of whatever happens to fall in front of you. Thank you. That was Liz Neely. Liz is the executive director of Story Collider. She started her career studying the color patterns of tropical fish and surprised herself more than anyone when she left the research path and went into ocean conservation and policy. For the past decade, she has been helping scientists around the world tell more compelling stories about their work. Most recently, she helped commission and edit the 2018 series Stories from the Front Lines at PLOS Biology. She is a lecturer at Yale in conjunction with the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative. So, Liz... How has this story changed since the first time you told it? (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, the biggest change was the, well, the first half. So I remember when I wrote this the first time, I thought, oh, alcohol is an obvious (laughs) starting place for this. It lets me make fun of myself, like that whole scene of tight taste testing and like keeping a lab notebook. And it, I thought, was a crafty bit of foreshadowing <laughs> for my story. But then I, I spent so much time in, those early, in that early story, the first time I told it, trying to get across the beauty of the Chesapeake Bay. I wanted to talk about oysters so bad. <laughs> we all do. So bad, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, letting go of that and realizing that even though that was the dominant thing in my head because it also you know I never say this in the story but it was the contrast between this beautiful landscape and the kind of ugly reality that I was facing in this story that made it profound to me Hmm. but really this story is more about me facing my first substantial challenge in trying to figure out if science was meant for me or not and so swapping it so that that Opening was about tests and how much I loved taking tests and also how I wanted to control everything. I felt both more true to who I was then and more thematically mature, but also harder to tell because it's who I still am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree totally. I feel like this new beginning on this version of the story really gives it a lot of depth because we can see, you know, how you are really challenged by the disorder that comes about in this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also cut the the preamble basically in half from the first version to the second. Like this story is about 2000 words long. And the first time I told it, I was more than 900 words in before I hit that point of like, okay, so now we're getting on the road to go to this research trip. And in the second version, it's only the 
it's like 400 something words. So I made the action, the meaningful action in the story start taking place much earlier as well. What impact do you think that had on the story? I think there's only so much I at least can do to ask the audience to keep paying attention to me while I'm, you know, waxing poetic (laughs) about oysters or whatever it might be. Um, I think listeners and the audience are waiting for stuff to happen in the Mm. story. And like I hadn't earlier appreciated how important that is to have the plot and have like events happening so that people can wonder, well, what happens next and what do you do with that? Is this version harder to tell than the earlier version? It is a little bit because I feel like my first version, I make this like self-deprecating joke about the girl who sat there and with the lab notebook drinking alcohol. Um, and I feel very distant from that version of myself, that 20-year-old version. But in terms of like the one who always wants to ace tests and like crush tests and crush the competition, that's still really part of who I am. And also, I mean, like, let's get honest about this. Like, There's not a lot of awards out there for people like me in my career path. And there's not a lot of ways to measure if I'm doing a good job now. And that is scary to admit and hard. And I would really like to just go back to a time and place where I could just sit down and take a test and then get a pat on the head. (laughs) We're so different. (laughs) Well, and to show instead of tell everybody that, uh, let's listen to yours. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contain high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. So our next story today is from Aaron Barker. It was recorded in April 2019 at The Wild Detectives in Dallas at our debut show in Dallas in partnership with the Dallas Morning News. You can catch our next show in Dallas this December. So... Uh, When I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with two very painful conditions, interstitial cystitis and vulvodynia, that affect uh, this area, the lady parts, I think is the scientific term. Uh, So my doctor brought me into his office, and he told me that because the medication that treats these conditions takes so long to work, usually years, sometimes never, that I was going to have to go a very long time Uh, possibly forever, without four very important things. And those four things, tragically, are alcohol, 
That's one. Caffeine. That one hurts. That one hurts. Uh, pants. That's a weird one. <laughs> and the fourth one, this is the really big one, everybody. Sex. And so, uh, to which I, of course, responded, oh, just those four things? <laughs> just the four things that make life vaguely livable? Cool. Uh, so, I was really upset about this. And I'm leaving his office with this prescription for this medication that may or may not work. And he slips me these two business cards. One of them is for a vaginal physical therapist, which is too weird for me to even think about in that moment. And the second one is for a vaginal surgeon, which is like nightmare to me. <laughs> the idea of having surgery there. And I just leave this office feeling so overwhelmed and upset and honestly frustrated. Like, what is the deal, medical science? We can put a man on the moon, but we haven't uncovered the mysteries of the human vagina yet? Like, let's start here on the ground. <laughs> and so I did what every New Yorker has done at some point. I cry on the subway all the way home in public, and it's New York, so no one talks to me. <laughs> And I'm really devastated because, if I'm honest, I really don't think that my boyfriend of three years, Justin, is going to stick around for all of this. He's really supportive, but who really wants to sign up for an indefinitely sexless relationship? Not a lot of people. Even really good people. Even people who have seen every Jason Statham movie ever made with you, or bake you a funfetti cake every year for your birthday, or cleaned you up after you shit your pants and barfed all over a Kroger's grocery store. All of which may or may not be things that Justin had done for me over the course of our relationship. <laughs> and it felt like every time I turned on the TV or I opened up a magazine, I was just bombarded by messages that if your relationship doesn't have sex, it's not good, it's not real, it's not healthy. And I couldn't help but think, is Justin thinking the same things? And my, my doctor would always try to cheer me up after all of our appointments by giving me some encouraging advice, but it always just ended up depressing me more. There's really nothing like having a 60-year-old gynecologist to remind you that heavy petting and oral sex play can be just as enjoyable as vaginal penetration. <laughs> Thank you so much, Doc. Also, no. No. <laughs> and even aside from that, uh, I felt like I was losing part of my identity because I am a blue jeans and beer type of girl. I'm not a skirts and chamomile tea type of girl. I tried really hard to hold on to my old habits for as long as I could. When we went out, I would still order a beer. I would just spit it back into the bottle <laughs> instead of swallowing it, which it turns out is kind of a turnoff for some people. Who knew? <laughs> and I kept wearing pants to work, uh, but when it got too painful, I would like undo them under my desk. And as long as I you know, remembered, everything was fine. Except, of course, inevitably, one day I did not. And I ended up in the hallway face to face with my boss's boss with my pants hanging wide open. And my favorite part of that incident is that I never explained myself. I kind of, I just let that one lie. 
there were times when I felt like maybe I should explain to my coworkers what was going on with me, but I just couldn't picture myself going through the explanation. Like, you see, Carl, my bladder doesn't produce lining on its own anymore, and the inflammation irritates my vagina. It just doesn't feel like a professional conversation. So after this, though, after the pants incident, I decided maybe try dresses. Maybe it's for the best. So I went to work one day in a dress that my mom bought for me, one of two dresses probably that I owned at the time. And I just felt really uncomfortable all day. Like I couldn't be myself, like I was pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. And I left work at the end of the day just feeling so bummed out, like I was doomed to be this lady that I wasn't forever. And I'm walking to the subway and I walk by this guy and he goes, hey, where are you going? And I'm like in such a bad mood from this day that in this moment when I would normally just, you know, keep walking or laugh, I glare at him and I go, fuck you. <laughs> and I storm off. Uh, but then he comes after me and I'm like, oh God, what's happening? I thought I had brought closure to this exchange. <laughs> but he stops me and he goes, Aaron, it's Dan from class. I didn't mean to freak you out. <laughs> It was my friend Dan, he had gotten a haircut and I didn't <laughs> recognize him. I thought he was saying, where are you going? But he was actually just saying, hey, where are you going? <laughs> At this point it became clear that I was on a downward mental spiral. I was hallucinating street harassment. This was a serious problem. So I decided it was time to start telling people about my condition, what I was going through. And they were surprisingly supportive. My boss even let me start working from home part-time, which was really helpful. And I took out one of those business cards that the doctor had given me. I still wasn't ready to think about vaginal surgery, but I started doing vaginal physical therapy, and it was just as weird as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, you should try it sometime. <laughs> Having a casual chat about the latest Matt Damon movie with someone whose entire hand is inside your vagina. I, I can't say I recommend it, but I started to make a lot of progress between that and the medication, and I started being able to have a cup of coffee every now and then, or a glass of wine. I started being able to wear pants. Do I amaze you? <laughs> but at a certain point, I hit a plateau, and I stopped making any more progress. And at this point, it had been two years, and I still hadn't gotten to that fourth thing. Sex still was not a possibility. So I broke down and I told Justin, I understand if you want out, you deserve to be with a normal person. You're in your 20s. And he looked at me and he said, Aaron, I love you. We've been together for years. Do you really think that I'm gonna leave now just because things aren't easy? And for the first time in two years, I realized how lucky actually was. But if I'm really honest, there was a part of me that didn't believe him, that thought eventually he would get sick of it. Especially when two years turned into three years, turned into four years. Until one day in 2013, in front of all of our friends and family, when he got down on one knee and proposed to me, and I thought, wow, how real must this be? 
if despite everything, he is willing to commit to me for the rest of his life. So I decided to match his sacrifice with a sacrifice of my own. I took out that card for the vaginal surgeon and I made an appointment. And I went in and I filled out the intake form and they had that section where you have to rank your pain on a scale from one to 10 and I circled all 10s because I wanted him to know I was serious. <laughs> and he examined me and he told me that I was not a candidate for vaginal surgery. And my heart sank because this was the very last thing that I could think of to do. There was nothing else. But then he told me that I was a candidate for a new experimental procedure. And that is how I ended up paying $5,000 to have a great deal of Botox injected into my vagina. <laughs> That's right, my vagina is very wrinkle-free. It's like Billy Crystal's face down there. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. It worked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to the magical powers of Botox, I have a fully functional vagina. In fact, and I don't mean to brag or anything, it functions on a pretty regular basis. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so even though I would never want to go through any of this again, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I hope that medical science catches up and uncovers the mysteries of the human vagina sometime soon. I still can't help but think that in some ways it's a blessing to know that the person that I have now been married to for five years truly loves me unconditionally. Thank you. That was Erin Barker. Erin is the artistic director of The Story Collider. As a storyteller, she's the first woman to win the Moth's Grand Slam Storytelling Competition twice. She has appeared on PRX's The Moth Radio Hour, and one of her stories was included in the New York Times best-selling book, The Moth, 50 True Stories. She has not yet been officially sorted, but she considers herself a Gryffindor. <laughs> Thank you for adding the yet in there. Mm. I appreciate that. <laughs> I believe it's going to happen. <laughs> so, so Erin, how did this story change since the first time you told it? It's funny because I actually told the story the very first time I was on the Story Collider stage back in 2011. Oh, wow. <laughs> so my first Story Collider story. And I was telling it at a time before I was fully recovered, before I was in remission from this mm -hmm. as I am now. And so I was much more in it in a certain way. And also when I told it that night, Ben's mom was in the audience. <laughs> she had come to visit and she was there in the front row. And I was like, oh, God, I'm, I got to talk about my vagina in front of Ben's mom. <laughs> but she was like, this is great. I went to Woodstock. I'm totally down to talk about vaginas. <laughs> uh, so I made friends with Ben's mom that night. <laughs> but uh, I feel like this version... It has more resolution to it naturally, you know, because of the time that has passed. More distance, yeah. Yeah, and but I also think my approach is a little bit different because when I told this story, geez, I must have been twenty-four or twenty-five, mm -hmm. so I was both 
more comfortable and less comfortable with the subject matter than I am now. Same like in the, about that. Yeah. In the original version, I, I get into a little more detail about like sex <laughs> with this condition that is so funny to me that I was comfortable talking about now because I would never talk about that on stage. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm totally comfortable talking about having Botox injected into my vagina now. I don't know what that says about me and how I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other elements of craft that you see yourself doing now that you are a much more seasoned storyteller than you were at the time? Hmm. That's interesting. I think, I mean, the outline for the first part of the story is relatively similar. Um, but I think in that part of the story that's been added on, I think more about pacing and I think more about just dwelling in tension mm. than I used to. Um, he's back when I first started, I don't, I don't think I thought about craft elements quite so much uh, as opposed to now when I've been talking about craft elements for years <laughs> with storytellers. <laughs> and so I think about, uh, for example, the cow on the fence, uh, which is an important story principle that we talk about often. Uh, and I'll, sh I'll share that photo on my Twitter account. Uh, but essentially, there should be a moment in your story when things are on the fence, when you don't know what's going to happen, you have that tension, things could go one way or the other. And I think I think about that balance a little bit more now. Mm. I have so many questions for you about that dwelling in the discomfort of telling a story, because I think both of us have these elements in there that make it, these are not stories that I think are common in science spaces. In, in fact, in in terms of being told out loud in front of other people. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. And it's interesting that over the years, the, really the changes that both of us have made have been about <laughs> dwelling in the uncomfortable moments. Yeah, you always talk about this idea of needing to walk through the fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember holding on to that advice for dear life because my story was also my first ever story collider story and more than that it was my oh, yeah. first ever storytelling performance of any kind um and I'd already been at story collider for almost a year when I took the stage and told that so and that's remember, a lot of pressure I was really scared I was afraid that a story about sexual harassment would cast my university in a bad light I was afraid that not telling it really well on stage would cast like story collider in a bad light. Um, but it was so profound to have, to be able to share something like that and then hear the reactions of the people who came and talked to me afterward. Oh yeah. I was going to ask that when you tell the story, do you get a lot of people approaching you afterwards? They do. Um, one of the most common things that people have said to me is that they really like the fact that I don't dwell very much on what he did. Like that, that professor is just a small part of the story and instead it's about me. And I think like that idea of empowerment and making sense of your life through telling a story. Well, I have, I have more science for you on that one for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's what I, I really like that about your story also, uh, that it is really about you and how you've transformed through this and how you're leaving this situation. 
um, instead of dwelling on this other person's experience. And I think yours, I mean, I know that there have been so many people who have heard your story and then said, like, they're struggling with the same condition or a similar one and have never met anyone else who they know um, has that and is coping with it. Yeah. Every single time I tell this story, it's kind of amazing. Somebody from the audience will come up to me and tell me that. And it just makes me want to keep telling it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I like this idea that stories help us feel less alone and uh, you're not going to be alone as a host anymore either. (laughs) Ooh, thematic synergy happening here. (laughs) That's right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today and listening to so much from both me and Liz. Going forward, the stories will not all be from me and Liz. (laughs) No. (laughs) We'll go back to introducing other people's stories. Um, But we're really excited to be hosting this together Uh, and looking forward to future stories to share with you. We absolutely are. And we're grateful for you. We are also super grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation. Nice and, transition. Uh, thank you. And <laughs> of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive <laughs> Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from our shows produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker. That's me. Anna Kuchman and Aparna Kumar. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Cambridge Junction and the Wild Detectives for hosting these amazing shows. And to everyone who endured our early versions of this story. (laughs) (laughs) And to the producers and our listeners who helped us make them what they are now. Thanks for listening, everybody.